Well, thank you for that wonderfully warm welcome. It's a great uh, joy uh, to be with you here. Thank you so much, uh, John, uh, for your welcome. And, uh, well, I was actually relatively new at uh, Trinity. He very kindly reached out to me. He took me out for lunch. We both shared together in our strange English accent. <laughs> wonderfully reassuring thing. Let's have a prayer as we uh, come to think about the uh, atonement, the work that Jesus has, has done for us there on the cross. So, Father God, we give you thanks that you're here today now by your Holy Spirit. Thank you for those things that you have done for us there on the cross, uh, things you want us to know about more deeply. We do pray, Lord, that you'd open up our hearts to your love and grace, to your forgiveness, to delight ever more in what you've done, to let you into our hearts that we haven't yet, to give over our lives to you afresh if that's what we need to do tonight. And help us understand what it is that you've done and rejoice in these great gifts through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. As I stand here before you, I'm reminded of a joke I actually learned from the great Billy Graham. And he was talking about a uh, visiting preacher who was in town. He was delivering his sermon, but sadly the sermon was not going well. But it was going on and on. And after a while, the congregation was growing restless. And in fact, somebody in the congregation grew so restless, he pulled out a hymn book, and he hurled it at the preacher. Well, it didn't get quite as far as the preacher himself, but it did hit a lady in the front row, slap on the back of the head. She was a bit surprised. After a few minutes, she managed to regain her composure, stood up, turned round and shouted, do it again, I can still hear him. <laughs> I like that joke anyway. I'm checking to see if there's any hymn books in here. I think, I think I'm relatively safe at the moment. But the great joy is we, we come tonight to think about the, the work of Jesus. And it's right so much at the heart of the Bible. We have... Right at the start of the Bible, God created this beautiful world, but before we know it, things are going wrong. And the world is on this tragic course to death and destruction. And in many ways, the whole Bible is a story of God's salvation, how he's come to redeem, to rescue, to restore this world that's gone so badly wrong. So I'm very glad to be part of this whole sequence of talks that you're having to think these things through more deeply. Very struck in that story we just heard in that wonderful testimony how important it is that we have an answer we can give to people who will ask us questions about our faith. Not just to do it in our own strength, I thought that was a great point that uh, he's brought out for us there, but to know things that we can draw on by the power of the Holy Spirit when we need to give an account for the faith that's in us. So we get a chance tonight to really think a little bit more about this work that Jesus has done. Now there are some notes, I don't know whether there's enough available, but maybe I've got Caleb, a real-life student from Trinity School for Ministry, if you want to know what it's really like at Trinity School for Ministry, no good asking me, because I think we're having a fine old time. But do talk to Caleb, and he'll tell you all about it. And come down and see us. We're just down the hill, basically, aren't we? Just drive down the hill, and there you are, Trinity School for Ministry in Ambridge, 311 11th Street. We do Jan and June terms. Come and find out more about what's going on. But what I want to focus in on tonight is this word, atonement. Literally, at one month. 
And it's a word that kind of takes us to the very heart of what Jesus was doing as he died on the cross for us. He was coming into a world which was estranged from the God who created us to bring us back at one moment. Again, atonement, reconciliation. Now, I know Jamie was uh, talking with you about that uh, last night, uh, last week, I mean, I'm not planning to revisit uh, that territory, although we may touch on little bits along the way. And as I think he told you last week, if I'm saying anything, I learned it from him. Well, maybe so. Or it may be we were talking about these things in class last week. <laughs> but what we're realising is we're coming here to such a central issue in the whole Bible. We have this problem. Great, holy, powerful, good God. Human beings in rebellion against this great, powerful, good God. We are sinners and we suffer sickness, sadness, suffering, pain, death, destruction, hell. This is a terrible spot to be in. And there's nothing we can do to put it right. So the great drama of Scripture is recognising that we really are in a serious crisis, but to discover that our God has not given up on us, then that he has done all that is necessary for us to be back at one with our Creator, which is so completely essential. He's the one who gave us life. He's the one who created us. He's given us a purpose. He's given us gifts. He's given us a whole reason for existing. Our life depends on him. We can't make it without him. Even the 70, 80, 90 years that we have, that depends on God. But if we want life everlasting, we can't get it without him. He's the source of everlasting life. So we have this great, powerful, holy God, pure, good, uncorrupted. And we have this human race full of all sorts of trouble, corruption. We're set on ourselves and not on him. What is to be done? Well, what we know is to be done is that Jesus has come and he's died for the sin of the world. He took responsibility for our crisis. He made it his own. He came to bring forgiveness to the sinners. We who have rebelled against him, the one who we rebelled against, came and said, I will pay the price for what you've done. It's the most extraordinary thing that he's done. But the New Testament also gives us various different descriptions that help us dig in a little deeper to see something of how this works. Now, this happened to be the whole field I did do my, my PhD studies on, as Sir John was saying, at King's College London. I actually, if, if I'm not saying enough to you tonight, there's a much longer answer. <laughs> I'm not gonna, if you can't sleep at night, this is the book for you. <laughs> the Justifying Judgment of God. But if you've only got mild forms of insomnia, there's a much shorter version. Um, the Gospel according to Galatians, much more user-friendly. Um, so we've got some flyers about that at the back of church. If you want to go further on some of the things I want to touch on tonight. But there are so many great images that the Bible gives us that helps us begin to see what's going on. Now, some of these you've already looked at. You thought about redemption, ransom. That one way of understanding what Jesus did was he came to pay the price to set us free from our captivity. We were in debtor's jail, if you like, because of our sin. We couldn't pay the debt off. All we could do is add more sin. <laughs> you can't pay it off. I know there are some religions that like to give you the impression that if we really work hard, we can pay it off. I, for one, have never done anything that was entirely good. Maybe you have. If so, please see me afterwards. But suddenly it was entirely good. The motivation was good. The outcome was good. The execution was good. I think most of us at least have mixed motives. So all we can actually do to our crisis of sin is add to it. It's a sobering thought. I don't want to depress you with these things, but that's part of the reality. 
Think about that wonderful story that's not on the notes, I must admit, but it comes to mind. Think about that story that Jesus told about the man who owed a debt to the king of 10,000 talents. It's six billion dollars. How did the man run up a debt of six billion dollars? But of course, there's a joke in the middle of this story when he says, give me time, I will pay it off. How's he going to do it? I'll do one billion this week, one billion next year. He's never going to pay it off. The most likely thing this man is going to do is add to it. Add to it. That's the thing we know he can do. He can build up a mighty debt. But he can't pay it off, and nor can we. Now, it's a sobering thing to realise when we first hear that, almost certainly we're going to react against it. Oh, yes, I can. George Bernard Shaw said, I will pay my own debts. And we understand that urge. There's something noble about that in our normal everyday life. But I'm telling you, this is a debt we can't pay. And it's a debt we don't have to pay. Jesus came to pay the ransom for us. To set us free from captivity, the sin, the death, and the devil. He set us free. There's also this lovely image of victory. Again, I've given you Bible verses in the text here. I'm not planning to go through all those. But another beautiful image that the Bible gives us, he's come to overcome our enemies. He's come to do the work of victory. That we are afflicted by powers greater than ourselves. The devil, temptation around us, the world, the flesh and the devil. All these things that continue to have power over us. Death itself. We can't defeat it. We thank God for the wonderful medical services we have. We've been celebrating, even this evening, the wonderful thing that doctors can do. But nobody can cure death, and they never shall. It's beyond our power. But Jesus has come and taken on the, the last enemy of death. He's defeated him. He doesn't, the story doesn't end with the, re, the death. It goes on to the resurrection. He rose from the dead on the third day. No one else has ever done that. It's not only that no one else has ever died for the sin of the world... That's absolutely vital, and that's our main work tonight. But nobody else has ever risen from the dead, never to die again. He came back with a resurrection body and said, you put your faith in me, you get one of these and you live forever in my presence. It's a victory over death and the devil, the one who has his power over us. Most of the time we're not even aware of it, especially if we're doing what he wants. But when we start turning around and following Jesus, we start to irritate him, and we become more aware of him. There's more temptation. One of the dangers, I think, of the Christian faith is as we go on with it, we think we're going to start feeling better and better, holier and holier. It's actually often the case, the further in we go, the more holy we become, the more conscious of sin we are. And the more tempted we are to fall away. But Jesus had victory over the devil. And if you doubt these things, um, just find out about what happens at an exorcism. I haven't been going out looking for exorcisms, but back in, uh, back in London, I was in deepest, darkest London, as uh, John was reminding us. And the parish I served in as, as a rector a little bit further out uh, from where Morris Jones was, that wonderful parish in uh, Emmanuel Paddington, we would go out and pray in homes when people moved into a home and didn't feel comfortable there. I saw exorcisms. We were praying, two of us were praying, and the person I prayed with, this demonic power came upon us as we prayed for peace in this house. And we prayed in the name of Jesus, that demon left. He left immediately. That's the sign of the victory of Jesus. He has the power over the demons. And for those who want a more scientific proof, okay, I'm a physics guy, as was also pointed out, 
How much stronger proof do you want than that? If this Jesus is dead and not raised, what's he going to do about a devil for you? Nothing. He is risen from the dead, defeated death, and he's defeated the devil. And so we have this extraordinary thing. He's defeated all of our enemies. Victory, victory. It's a wonderful gift. But the thing I want to focus on most tonight is this next uh, image that the Bible gives us, the image of sacrifice. That wonderful text that we have in John uh, and chapter 1, verse 29, when John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Incredibly powerful thing to say. Perhaps we don't feel the full force of it when we first hear it. But we've got to realise, as we'll see in a moment, we needed this Jesus to come for our salvation. All those sacrifices that have been offered down the years, they in themselves could not actually deal with the problem of sin. What they did was to point us towards this, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. So John the Baptist sees this thing that the world should have been longing for all these generations. At last, someone who can really get to the root of our problem and overcome it by subjecting himself to it. The Lamb of God comes to die for the sin of the world. He bears the sin of the world and he dies as the Lamb of God. Now, if we're going to understand that, we're going to have to unpack what it means to see the Old Testament sacrificial system. What was it teaching us? What was it telling us? What does it mean to be the Lamb of God who dies for the sin of the world? Well, we're going to come to that in just a moment. But some of the most helpful teaching on this we find in the great letter of the Hebrews. And particularly, I want to spend a little moment looking at some of the great texts in Hebrews chapters 8 through 10, especially Hebrews chapter 9. I'm going to read out the verses you need, so if you don't have a Bible there, it's not a problem. I'll read them out for you. But I want to just read out a few of the verses from Hebrews chapter 9 which take us so much into the heart of these things. Verse 11, But when Christ appeared as the high priest, so we're back in the sacrificial language again, of the good things that have come, then through the greater, more perfect tent, not made with hands, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Now, this is not familiar language to many of us. If we're not used to images of sacrifice, it's because the sacrifices have been fulfilled in Jesus. But to those in the first century who were hearing these images, they were familiar with the sacrificial system. It's not unique to Judaism, although, of course, it's very important there, but you're seeing in the pagan religions too. When you needed to appease God, you would recognize the seriousness of your crisis, and you would recognize that someone needs to die. Well, in this particular case, it's an animal who dies in our place, bearing the sin of, of, of our own uh, faults and shortcomings. So what we're seeing here is this description of being able to come into the holy place. Reminded where God is, there's holiness and glory and grandeur and beauty. But if we're going to come into it, we become aware that we're in filthy clothes, filthy rags, as Isaiah puts it. We're not fit to come into the presence of a holy God. What we need is to be cleansed. All those moral failures that are appalling in the sight of God, they need to be cleansed away. 
And so what we find in this sacrificial system, and you can look at it more in details in Leviticus chapter 4, is that part of what would happen is that someone who was coming to make a sacrifice for their sin would, if you like, identify with the animal. We're never told explicitly what's happening, but there's a laying on of hands of the animal. A connectedness between the person who has sinned and the animal that's about to die. And the clear implication is, here is a man or a woman whose actions have, have threatened their very lives. They could die for this sin. But they are connected with this animal, this sheep, this goat, whatever the animal might be, and they lay their hands on this animal, there's a connectedness. There's a kind of a sense of maybe confessing sin over the animal. We're never told that in the Bible. The people who received these scriptures knew what they meant. But then the animal dies. It's not that they spill a little bit of blood and all is well. The animal has to die. So the message is so powerful that here we are as people who've fallen into sin and we realize that we have forfeited our very life because we've broken the relationship with the God on whom our life depends. But he, this gracious God, has made a provision for us. He said, if you bring this sacrifice to me, I will forgive you. We don't have to die. The animal dies in our place. This is the gracious work of sacrifice. That God has provided an alternative to our death. Now, all the time, these animals were pointing forward to Jesus. Although they would have been hard-pressed to see it at the time, but they were helping us to be able to understand this wonderful thing that one day Jesus would do. He came to bring us the forgiveness of sin. And we just carry on down. It's reinforced in that verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Sin, all these things that we do that we shouldn't do, or we don't do that we should do, all these things, in other words, that fall short of the glory of God. We were created to reflect the glory of God. Anything we're doing that is not bringing glory to God, that's sin. Now, I know to many people in our world today, that will come as a tremendous surprise. Often sin is reserved for the really serious offences. Maybe murder would be still considered a sin by a lot of people, and other things we could add there. But the Bible standard of sin is surprisingly tight. Unless it's actually glorifying to God, unless it's loving God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, unless it's loving our neighbour as ourselves, it's sin. Wow. <laughs> so guess what? If you didn't think you needed to hear about this forgiveness of sin, maybe you're beginning to feel yourself included. I'm certainly in. I hope you are. <laughs> we know we need this forgiveness. But it goes on as we go into chapter 10. As I say, if you want to really put this thing together, reading chapters 8, 9, and 10 of Hebrews gives you a wonderful introduction to some of these great realities. But I'm going to just take out a few of the verses here. Go into chapter 10 and verse 2. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. This is the next step. We needed these sacrifices because it demonstrated very deeply and powerfully that all these things that we do that we shouldn't do, or that we don't do but we should, they really matter. That's what's ruining our lives and the lives of those around us. It doesn't bring us the freedom and the joy that we're promised. It brings us bondage and decay. So the lesson is taught time and time again, sin leads to death. But God doesn't want us to simply die. He wants the wicked to turn from their way and live. Instead, he says, I will provide for you this sacrificial system. You bring this animal under the conditions I give you and I will receive the death of the animal in your place. 
But it says quite explicitly here, but, be clear, the blood of bulls and goats don't take away sin. They point us to the Saviour, Jesus Christ. He's the one who can take away sin. If the old system with the, 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 uh, the goats and the lambs and such like worked, we never needed Jesus. If it was working, fine. That's something else that explains in a little bit more detail and technical language in Hebrews chapters 8 through 10. But the point is it was helping us to see what would happen, but also we had to be made clear it doesn't work on its own. The sheep and the goats that died for the sin of the people, they were pointing forward to the Jesus, the Saviour, who would come. If he'd never come, then the sacrifices would not have worked. It's so central. It was all pointing forward to the day when the Lamb of God would come and take away the sin of the world. It is that absolutely central. He, and he alone, has died for the sin of the world. There is no plan B. And he and he alone has risen from the dead, never to die again. That's why he's unique. When we talk about the uniqueness of Jesus, we're not denigrating anybody else's world religion or philosophy. There may indeed be wisdom there. There may indeed be helpful people there. But no one else has died for the sin of the world. And no one else has risen from the dead, never to die again. I'm going with him. (laughs) Hey, he's actually come from the Father. He's gone back to the Father. Others may have some wisdom, but they can't have as much wisdom as this. This is wisdom personified. It's the very word of God. And it's a word of grace, and it's a word of mercy. I'm going to read a little bit more from these verses. It's so important. Here we go, verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 10. Every priest stands daily at service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Again, the good teacher here of Hebrews, he keeps telling you. You were surprised when I said that before. I'm going to say it again. They can never take away the sins, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, didn't have to keep doing it, he's not still doing it, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That is a significance of what he's done. This word atonement, it literally means a covering. It's covered up the crisis of sin. It's not standing between us and God anymore because Jesus took it in himself. He bore responsibility for our crisis and he made it his own. That's why we can say, we get on to the last verse in that little section there, verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Forgiveness is what it's all about. Sometimes we make light of forgiveness. But if you've ever had to really forgive someone for something they really hurt you by, you know there's nothing easy about forgiveness. But to make it a more you know, general, perhaps slightly less personal example, let's go back to that story I reminded you of, that Jesus told about the king who was owed 10,000 talents, $6 billion dollars. What does he do? He forgives the servant. Okay, now you don't have to be very good at maths at this point, but I'm going to give you a very easy mathematical problem. If the king forgives $6 billion, what does it cost the king? $6 billion. We forget that. When a bank forgives a debt, it doesn't mean they just simply get out the old eraser and say, I'm going to rub that number out, put another number in. When a bank forgives your debt, it means it's lost the money. 
It's not getting it back. This is the nature of forgiveness. When Jesus died on the cross as his sacrifice for sin, what it meant was, he was simply saying, I forgive you your sin. I'm not demanding from you the consequences of your actions. I will take those consequences myself. It is a substitution. He died so that we don't have to die. He took the burden of our sin and guilt and death and judgment. He went to hell itself so that we don't have to bear the burden of our sin and death and judgment and don't have to go to hell itself. That's the radical nature of what he's done, but this is the nature of forgiveness. When Jesus says from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's a wonderfully powerful word, and it takes you to the very heart of the atonement. The things that we have done wrong, all the sins and all their thousands of shapes and forms, Jesus has carried them to death. He has forgiven us our sin. We don't owe it to him anymore because he has paid it. The debt, it is finished. We're getting ahead to Good Friday here. I don't want to sneak ahead to Good Friday. You may be thinking about these very words then. But these are just such vital words. It is finished. The whole price for paying the debt for all the sin of the world, that's every individual sin in this room here today, and there may be a few, I don't know, but probably quite a lot between us, and all those of the other people who couldn't be here tonight, and all those from all the other countries of the world, and all those generations who've gone before us, and indeed the generations still to come, as long as the mercy and patience of the Lord lasts, he has died for their sin. This is very big. There is nothing bigger. The sacrifice for sin has come. But that's not the end of the story. The fact that God has brought us forgiveness through this sacrifice doesn't in itself restore the vital relationship. That itself does not get at one month. Reconciliation. All it means is that God is saying, I forgive you. And that's the big thing. I mean, don't get me wrong, that is a very big thing. God is saying, I forgive you. You have sinned against me in more ways than you could possibly count. And I say, you are forgiven. But it's only when we hear that word of forgiveness and say, thank you that you died on the cross for me. I received that forgiveness. I'm sorry. That's what it costs you to sort this thing out. Forgive me. Receive me back. Make me a new man, a new woman, a new child. Put your spirit within me. That's when you become reconciled to the Father. That's when you are now at one with the Father. You've got to receive the forgiveness. Think about it in a relationship. Imagine you're in a relationship with someone, perhaps a husband or a wife or a, or a friend, but imagine you've really done something bad that spoiled the relationship. And the other person says, I forgive you. That actually doesn't quite fix the relationship, does it? You've got to receive the forgiveness. You've got to actually receive the forgiveness. I still remember this. I was still back in England when the day when um, um, President Bill Clinton was very publicly in trouble. There must have been some time when Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton had a very serious conversation. And she forgave him. That's forgiveness. Only 
you see, and again, he's got to actually receive that forgiveness. The husband on that occasion had to receive the forgiveness. He could have said, you know what? I can't believe I've done this. You can't possibly forgive me. I'm out. There would be no reconciliation then. We have to receive the forgiveness to be reconciled. The reconciliation is what we need. The sacrifice has been offered. The sin of the world has been covered. But that doesn't completely fix it. We've got to receive it. Or we can say, as George Bernard Shaw did, I will pay my own debt. That option is still available. But I'm not recommending it. If he's paid it, thank you. I received the payment. Make me a new person. Use me. Put me to whatever purpose you've got. You've surely paid for me. What do you want me to do? Because sin never delivers on all the fun stuff it's promising. It just takes us further and further into darkness, into captivity, not freedom. He's paid the price for all that so that we can be set free and made new. Put back into that place where we know God is our Father in heaven who loves us, who is for us, who's got a purpose for us, who's with us. United with Jesus Christ as with a brother that we can walk with every day and share every thought with every day, knowing whatever he says, that's what we need to hear. He's always for us. And empowered by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that Spirit in our lives every day. Turning to Jesus Christ is not the beginning of a self-improvement program. It's the end of the self-improvement program. If you're ever on the self-improvement program. It's the point where we say, I can't fix it, but you can. We need the Spirit of God in our life. Jesus had the Holy Spirit of God in his life. Having the Holy Spirit of God in your life, that's normal life. But we can't have the Holy Spirit of God in our life until we've received the forgiveness of sin. Remember that wonderful thing that Peter said at the end of his Pentecost sermon? There he was, the day of Pentecost, proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And there were people there who were involved in his crucifixion. It's a very moving day. And they said, well, what have we got to do? He didn't say, try to get your act together, dear friends. See if the rest of your life can be better than the first half. No. He said, repent and be baptised and you will receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is for you and for your children. That's a lot of very good news in a few words. Repent. In other words, you can't just plough on as you were when you hear the good news that Jesus has died for your sin. If you've got any sense of what sin means, you're going to say, well, I'm on the wrong track. Time for a U-turn. Not a life that continues ploughing on, being as selfish as I possibly can get away with, to being a life that's as God-centred as you can possibly be. That's the transformation we're talking about. Now God himself has to help us make the U-turn. But it is a genuine transformation of life. It's not just business as usual. It's the end of the old self. It's death to me and life of Jesus in my heart. It's all about Jesus now. It should have been all along. It's only an improvement. Again, if you're struggling with these things, maybe you're, you're coming and tonight you're not you know, familiar with some of the things I'm saying. But the temptation is to think, I've got a better plan for my life than God's plan for my life. And some people have to really fight that for years. I want to I witness to you, God's got a better plan for your life. Now, you can talk to other people here. Don't just take my word for it. Don't think, well, if I start following Jesus... If I receive the forgiveness of sin and start getting involved in the life of the church and being one of the people of God, it's going to be plan B. No. 
You're already on plan B. He's bringing you plan A. It's a better plan. Don't just take my word for it. There's other people here who believe the same things I do. Talk to them. Talk to them, the people who brought you. Find out why they think Jesus has made their life better. Again, it doesn't mean we avoid all the problems of life. Absolutely not. But it does mean he comes with us through them. That's a wonderful thing. In the boat with us, in the storms. It's a very different kind of world. There's an image which I found very helpful, and it just kind of talks about this whole central matter of receiving this forgiveness of sin. It kind of helps us to understand something of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. I'm not going to talk about justification, because I think you're doing that next week. I don't want to sneak ahead to next week's talk. Don't read those bits of notes in case that in any way trespasses on other people's property. <laughs> I will sneak on to things later on down the path here. I want you to imagine that in this little notebook is a brief summary of my sin. And what we're talking about here is as if the light there represents God. We've got a record here of all the things that stand between me and God. That's why for so many of us, life seems so dark. And God seems so distant. It says in Isaiah 59 and verse 2, our sins have separated us from God. That's the root of the problem. I don't know what problems he brought in here with you tonight, but I can tell you at least one of the roots, probably the root, sin. Someone somewhere is not trying to glorify God all the time. Probably you and them would be my calculation. But what we're talking about is it's our sins that separate us from God. But what we have in Jesus Christ, he's come down from the Father. This is the very Son of God. He's come down from the Father. He always did what the Father wanted. He never sinned. He always glorified God all the time. He always loved God. And he always loved his neighbour as himself. Great love has no man when he gives up his life for his friends. Yes, he went even there. And so what we see is this Jesus has come down from the Father, and what he's done, he is the Lamb of God, he bears the sin of the world. He's taken my notebook and every notebook of every human being who ever lived. He said, I will die for your sin. Let me go to the place you're headed, so that you can go to the place I came from. And what it now means is he's taken it, but he's taken it down to death. He's not still burdened by our sin. He's taken it where it goes. It's died with him. It's buried. But what we need to do is actually let that become our reality. Don't carry on paying the price for the sins that he's paid for. No point paying twice. But you will if you don't receive the forgiveness. That's a harsh reality of it. Receive the forgiveness that Jesus has won for us. Don't carry the burden about anymore. Don't take it home with you tonight even. There's no need. You can sleep at peace with God tonight. But we have to receive the forgiveness so that that sacrifice for the sin of the world actually starts to have its powerful effect in our lives. That we know we are forgiven. Whatever it is in our past, and who hasn't got stuff in their past they're ashamed of? That they wouldn't want to come up here and talk about it in front of us all. God knows all about that. And he says, you know, I've died for that already. Why are you letting it be a burden in your life? Let me take it from you. And to receive that gift of the Holy Spirit, he comes to us as we repent. 
turning our life around, putting our life back into the hands of Jesus, saying, okay, this life, it was yours. I'm sorry I didn't let it be yours all the time. Here it is. Make of it what you will. We're offering our life back to God. This is our living sacrifice, our recognition that he's given us everything. The obvious proper response is to at least give him what he gave us. It's his anyway. We're giving ourselves back to him. Let him take us where he will. But then what we're doing is we repent and we are baptised, we become part of the life of the church. We are part of this new community that is living in the forgiveness of sin, that is learning about the purposes for which God created us, redeemed us, and has its purposes for our future, and we're entering into the hope that has been brought to us through Jesus Christ. A lot of people today live without any hope in the world. It's a terrible spot to be in. Jesus doesn't want people to live without hope. He came to bring us a hope of a future. Not just more of the same. That's not a very happy thought. Just this world rolling on as it is ad infinitum, that's not a happy thought. And thankfully it's not the biblical view of the future. What it means is that when we die, we go into the heavenly realm with Jesus Christ. We rest in him, freed from our labours here, rejoicing in the glorious presence of the Father in heaven. And then there will come the time when Jesus returns. And they have the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. And we receive our resurrection bodies. And we live forever in the world as God intends it. Not in its current messed up version. Where everything works. Beautifully. When you could not be happier than you are. But every gift that you have is actually used to its full glory and for the benefit of others, for the common good. Everything is as beautiful as it could conceivably be. And at last we see what God created in the first place. And we get to the point we couldn't praise him more. In this life we often praise him through the tears. But not then, no tears then. It's such an enormous thing that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. He came to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He doesn't want us to carry the sin anymore. I'll read a little quote I want to use from over the page here from John Stott. Our substitute then, who took our place and died our death on the cross, was neither Christ alone, since that would be a third party thrust between God and us, nor God alone, that would undermine historical incarnation. This is the Son of God made flesh. But it's God in Christ who truly and fully, both God and man, and who on that account was uniquely qualified to represent God and man and mediate between them. So what has happened here in Jesus Christ, we have the one who is both the Son of God and the Son of Man. He comes into our crisis, he takes our burden and makes it his own. He takes sin down to death so that we can receive this forgiveness and be made his new people. And that is why the cross stands at the heart of the Christian faith. He came to die. came to die for the sin of the world and then to rise again to everlasting life and to be the ruler of all things, the Lord of lords and the King of kings. But his great desire was to come and rescue us, restore us into this wonderful world that he created us for, to put us back into that relationship that we were created to be in, knowing God as our Father, being united with Jesus Christ as our elder brother, if you like, and full of that Holy Spirit that animated and guided Jesus and all those who have gone before us following in his way. That's the call that we receive. It's an amazing thing that, that God has done. It's foolishness to the world. The idea that the ruler of the world dies on a cross, very surprising story. 
it's a surprise because you can't believe that the ruler of the world would love us that much. There are two things I think we would never know without the cross of Jesus. The first is that sin is so terribly serious. We're surrounded by sinners. It doesn't seem like a big deal. But when you see Jesus on the cross, you see how terrible sin is. That's where sin leads. And nor do we know that God loves us like that. It's unimaginable to us, I think, that anyone would love us like that. But the God who created all things, sustains them by his word of power, created the whole universe, loves us enough to come and make our problems his own, die on the cross for us. It's absolutely mind-boggling. But that is the central revelation. That's the true God. This is the real God. I don't know what God you might have in mind, but this is the real God. The God who loves us so radically that he would come and make this crisis his crisis so that we can know the forgiveness of sin, be restored into his family, and made a new people. Witnessing to his great glory, singing his praises. It's all his holy work. So we need to receive this forgiveness. I'm going to give us a chance to do that in just a moment. Not just once, but time and time again. We don't just stop sinning the moment we start following Jesus, I'm very sorry to tell you. The crisis continues, but so does the mercy. The Lamb of God, he died for those sins too. So we continue to receive this amazing forgiveness. We consider to receive this wonderful new life. God has come to us to bring out one moment, to restore us into this relationship with our Father through Jesus Christ our Lord. I want to just uh, take a moment now to reflect on these things and to, for ourselves, receive this forgiveness. Maybe for the first time, or maybe to receive it once again, but to receive it with great thanksgiving. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's just be still in the presence of the Lord and allow the Spirit of God to touch us and speak to each one of us. Maybe this is a night when you do want to really receive that forgiveness, maybe for the very first time. Maybe to be renewed in that forgiveness. Maybe you just are so conscious of things that you've done that have come between you and God. Jesus has died for that sin. Let's come and receive that forgiveness afresh here tonight. Allow the Spirit of God to move in us in a fresh and powerful way. Make, his, make us his people, people who love him and who love other people through him. I'm going to say a prayer, and if this is a prayer you want to make your own, and you're saying it for the very first time, do come and speak to me about it afterwards. I'd like to have a chance to, to follow up with you. Maybe that language we heard earlier about the prodigal son, maybe you've been away from the Lord for some time, and you feel he's calling you back. You need to know that your sins have already been paid for. You don't have to pay them off yourself. If they're a prayer, you might want to echo it back in your own hearts. Our Father in heaven, thank you that you love us so very much. That you sent Jesus to die for the sin of the world. Thank you for that amazing forgiveness. 
we're sorry for our sin. Things we've done that we shouldn't have done. Just name those before God in the silence. The things that we shouldn't, we, we never did, but we know we should have done. You can just put those before God in the silence if there's something on your heart tonight. I receive your forgiveness tonight. Help me to live a new life by the power of your spirit. I give you great thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.